Uh, that's a question for Charlie Nardozzi over here. <laughs> um, do, do you know who Charlie Nardozzi is, Babo? No, no, no idea. Uh, but... <laughs> oh, that's one for our Vermont listener. <laughs> Whoever's left out there. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Spring peeper. 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 All right. (laughs) Spring has sprung. Spring has sprung. Um, Bob, you sound lovely. You sound lovely. The way that you both harmonized in that last spring peeper was really, really beautiful. <laughs> do you know uh, what? Yeah. Do you know what a peep is, Bob? Yeah, it's a little like marshmallow candy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Peeps? Yeah. Um, but a peeper. But a peeper is what, Julie? It's a tiny little frog. Nice. <sighs> like a tiny one. Yes. They're I, I so know that tiny. One. Yeah. Uh, well, hi, Julie. Nice to see you. Hi, Dave. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you both. And I'd like you both to give me three words of how you're coming to this podcast, like just how you're feeling. What are three words to describe how you're coming in? Um, I'm going to go first, please. Yes, please. On the edge. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll, do you want me to expand? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm on the edge, baby. <laughs> I am sore and sunshine. Sore and sunshine. I, my three words are summer, light, and colorful. Colorful Colorado. So I did that because that is a great little tool to use on Zoom and to like encourage like more maximum participation. I learned that I was at a a great workshop on how to facilitate meetings on Zoom. And I love that little thing. It's like, you know, small, but actually really powerful to get people to like it's all about getting people more into it, you know, and I did it in my class today and it really worked well. And so Are, do people have to respond verbally or do they respond in the chat? Is that what you're trying to get? Yeah, that one I do just in the chat. And then when we see it all, then I ask someone to reflect on themes. Or, and if no one does that, then I, I get I go in on the themes and it starts to like build conversations. Nice. Yeah, that is, that's pretty interesting. And then do you send them to a breakout group? Um, sometimes, but it depends. Breakout groups have to be used carefully because some students hate them. And sometimes conversations can go real flat and like no one will talk. So it can actually sometimes isolate groups. But if you use a breakout room right with good prompt and like some energy going into it, then they can really be generative and helpful. So yeah. You just got to be very intentional and careful. I'm learning. That's interesting. I like yeah. that reflection. Those are two things that I have not thought of. Do 
speaking of you as Dr. Bob, do what do the students call you? Do they call you Dr. Meitzler? Or no, do they call uh, you Bobo? Uh, <laughs> Actually, I've gotten a, a hilariously large amount of emails that just say Maisler as the first line, and then they write <laughs> something to me. Like, not any, just Maisler. And then they say, can I have an extension on my paper? I'm like, oh my God, that's ballsy to just, you know, call me Maisler and then ask, ask for an extension. Um, but that, that definitely has happened. They call me all crazy, all kinds of different things, um, but... I like it most when they call me Professor Bob. That one feels the best. <laughs> yeah, Professor Bob. Does does anyone call you doctor? In emails they do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I I got to say it's funny when kids mess up my name. Uh, my new name, it's really funny. I've gotten Peachhead. I've oh, gotten nice. I've gotten Mr. Peoples. <laughs> uh, excuse me, Mr. Peoples. <laughs> and then it's just like, what? Like, oh my God. One time a kid accidentally called me Mr. Pee Pee. Oh, did you lose the class after that? I, I said, you get the, you get the hell right out of here. Get out of my classroom. I was on the edge. Let's just, let's just put it that way. How many kids have you sent to the principal's office? In your time as a teacher? Um, one. Wow. But boy, did he deserve it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we could have a whole podcast on that, but I do want to pivot to our, pivot. our wonderful guest, Julie. And we had this great question for her. Well, I have questions, but I also just want you to freestyle on, um, you know, it's springtime. Here in Seaside, it was like 75 today. It was like glorious. It just felt like midsummer, um, unbelievable. And so, yeah, I was thinking about garden and seeds. So I wondered if you would share some reflections on seeds. Yeah, I pulled, went down to the basement, pulled out our seed box and kind of took stock of what we had. And I just love the symbol of the seed and all of the hope that these little babies can represent. Um, I went in the school garden last year near the end of the season, the person who is in charge just kind of gave up. They were just kind of done with the garden (laughs) by the first frost. And so I went through the day before and collected a bunch of seed. Um, So that was exciting to have some saved seed. That's something that, um, I'm pretty new to, but I love that idea. And I ended up with just so, so much seed. Um, I have a bunch of calendula seed, which I love, and um, cilantro, which magically turns into coriander. And uh, just have been making seed packets every evening so I can share the bounty with anyone who wants it. Oh, wow. That looks beautiful. Yeah. They've shown me some seeds. Yeah, seed packets, like sharing little gift bags of seed packets this time of year. That's so, I love that idea. And I had a question about, like a practical question is, let's say I'm trying to germinate some seeds for to grow some starts, so not into the soil at first. What's my best method in terms of, should I keep those in my garage or should I put those right out into exposure right away? Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that's a question for Charlie Nardozzi over here. <laughs> um, 
Do, do you know who Charlie Nardozzi is, Bravo? No, no, no idea. No. But... <laughs> oh, that's one for our Vermont listener. <laughs> Whoever's left out there. It, it just felt like the exact name for this question. For yeah. me, and I, I have no idea who that person is. Well, uh, he's like a Vermont VPR, Vermont public radio guy. And he always does like a 10 minute every Friday thing on like something guarding related. And yeah, he's just like, it's funny when you live in Vermont, you get these names that like get stuck in your head because it's like so Vermont. And like, there's this guy that does the weather every day. His name's um, the eye on the sky. I'm Steve Molesky with an eye on the sky. (laughs) Yes. Is that his name? Yeah, Steve. But then he got taken over by another guy and he does the eye in the sky different. Anyway. Back to the question. Yeah. So I think here's the truth. You want to get them in sun pretty. You want you want to make sure that they they can at least see the sunlight. I actually have kids doing a science experiment where there's um, seven plants of corn in front of my window and there's seven plants of corn literally right to the left of it but they're not directly in the sunlight and the ones that are not in mm. the sunlight are almost dead and yellow so seeds they need sunlight to actually germinate or it's like yeah. it's super helpful oh sorry no they don't okay that's um, for starts yeah that's for starts I, I guess okay to germinate, I usually, you can just put them right in the soil and make sure that the soil's wet. If you want, you can like leave them in a paper towel overnight and like get them wet in a paper towel or even just like leave them in water overnight and then plant them into the soil the next day. And then I guess on top of that, once they start to come up, so once you get the starts, you want to make sure that they can see sunlight every day. Like, immediately once you see any type of green then they need to be there and then eventually it's called hardening off and then that's when you want to get them outside into the like the weather before you plant them so out out of the greenhouse and into like the natural weather but julie might have seeds that julie was talking about earlier in colorado what will you do with them? Because I believe I saw on social media that it snowed in Colorado t- today or yesterday. Is that true? Or was I seeing something else? Um, not here. It definitely could have snowed somewhere in Colorado, but we didn't see snow today. Yeah, I think the one addition I want to make to that is being mindful of the temperatures because um, little baby seeds and little with little sprouts um, can't really handle the it getting down too cold, of course, a frost, but even getting down too cold can stunt their growth, which is why we start indoors, right? It allows them that growth period. And then by the time it warms up enough for them to be outside, they've just got a little extra head start in that growth. Um, so I just wanted to add that yeah, little piece. Does that help, Bobo? Yeah, it does for other Californians like myself. I think what I would take from what you both said is I would do my starts in my garage because it does still get cold here at night, not freezing, but cold. And then once they start popping, um, I would get, I would probably put them outside, um, Mm -hmm. in my backyard. Yeah. I think where they can get some sun. Yep. Yeah. My guess is where you are, Bob is not, you're not in too much danger of damaging. I don't think the temperature gets so low, but 
I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. I, I definitely could be wrong or you could be in some little, little microclimate, you know, that gets a little colder or something. There's always things to consider like that. Yeah. And peppers and tomatoes love heat. That's the one thing to look out for. Peppers, tomatoes, eggplant. Those are called solanaceae or solanums. And you're going to want to get those. Those guys are going to want heat underneath. They don't really want to dip below 50 degrees. So, yeah. As we're talking about seeds, this is the show that for us is the 1st of April and Easter's coming up this weekend. When it gets published, it will be mid-April or the like. Um, But yeah, this idea of seed growing in Easter and the roots, we often talk about the roots of holidays on this show and thinking about like the roots of Easter as rooted in, in pagan traditions, that idea of proliferation, spring, growth, reproduction, and those ideas are really interesting to think about with, with seeds at this time of year as well. And it just, what are you, what are you guys going to do this weekend during the Easter? I think it's going to be really beautiful here. I'm really looking forward to getting out in that sunshine. We've noticed some of the first little flowers um, in like planted yards, but I feel like the wildflowers aren't too far behind. Um, yeah. and with Easter, I always like to think about that earth-centered worship. Um, yeah. And all the symbols that you talked about, you know, the, the flowers and the eggs and the bunny rabbit, all symbols of fertility. Um, also, I mean, it's looking to the natural world and this is the time when all the animals are mating and a season of green and plenty of food is right around the corner. And I definitely feel that excitement in myself at this time of year too, knowing that growth is happening, even if we're not seeing things pop up quite yet. Yeah. I love, you know, the idea that Easter happens on like the first, it's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Right. Which is like such a nice, like, pagan to the root way of celebrating a holiday. And I feel like that feels really sweet to me. And I love that idea of how like centered it is to the seasons. Cause there's not many holidays that are like, you know, besides Easter and Abraham Lincoln's birthday, there's no holidays that are that related to the season. Wink. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah. So anyway, to answer your question, we're going to go down to Helen Maisler's house. We are all like, over two weeks out of the vaccine, or, you know, we've gotten our second vaccine shot over two weeks ago and we're going to go see her and eat some carrot cake and smoke a ham and, you know, eat some, what does she call them? Scalp potatoes? Yes. Like the cheese potatoes? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That is a good Easter tradition at the Maislair household uh, growing up. Absolutely. And what about you, Bob? You know, uh, I this I was wondering if mom will prepare an Easter egg hunt for you all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. One of my students asked me today, he said, Mr. Peoples, he, <laughs> uh, he said, Mr. Peachtree, are you going to like hide Easter eggs around the classroom? I said, 
I don't think so, guy. But that'd be really cute, wouldn't it? Yeah. What's the COVID protocol around that? Um. Oh boy. At this point, it's just like every every egg for himself, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I imagine that there's some COVID protocol, but it's a little. It's not happening for me right now. That's we're not. We're just not going to do an Easter egg hunt. Maybe next year. I kind of like that tradition of yeah. like letting the kids tear apart my classroom and make a mess. <laughs> I like the idea of bringing celebrations to the classroom. I feel like those are the things that build community is celebrating together. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's sweet. Um, well, should we get into the meat and potatoes y'all? Yeah. yeah. I'll let you guys get to it. Yeah. We'll say bye to Julie. Thanks for the intro. Julie. Great to have you, Julie. Love Thank me. you for sharing the knowledge. Love you both. Love you. So we got, we got Dr. Bob as he like Professor Bob, sorry, as he likes to be called. And it was nice. We had Julie on the couch in the sound studio. So we said, why not get her on the airwaves? And, but today what we were kind of going to get after is this idea back to the theme of baggage. And we were going to do a little unpacking of something that's long overdue, which is unpacking Bob's dissertation. And a lot of people have asked me, I don't know if you know this, Bob, over the years, like, what is your brother study? What's he teach? Like, what is everything that he does out there? And it's a hard question to answer. It's, you know, as a grad student, you have to have like a blurb, right? So you have to have like that one or two sentences of what you studied and how you studied it. And your dissertation has to, you know, sort of follow along with that. And I think that seems like a great place to start the like cocktail party question for grad students. Is that what you guys call it? Elevator speech. Uh Uh-huh. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So what is, yeah, this would be good. And this will be good too, because anytime I have something to refer back to, I can always say, oh, just go listen to uh, episode 45 of Thriving in Dystopia. Then, then you'll like, you can hear like in detail, but anyway, what, what's your elevator speech, Bobo? If I get, just three words like I gave you, then I, I say that I'm an educator, an organizer, and then community psychologist. I make that one word. And so that, that, that puts me in a nutshell. I take a perspective rooted in liberation psychology, meaning that teaching, research, and activism should be, act- all that should be activism because it needs to be rooted in social justice. Um, and there's different ways of understanding that, but, and those are good conversations, but we need to be rooting our work, like in the perspective of the, op- the oppressed, right? Mm-hmm. Frarian ideas, things that I got from dad um, and internet. Um, and that, that shifts disciplines quite a bit because most disciplines are from the perspective of the privilege. So my teaching and research is activism. My particular form of activism is I believe activism is strongest when you you go from your experiences in the world. And so I have to go from my experiences as a white cis man. And so that's a lot of privilege. How do I contribute to social justice from that perspective? There's many, many ways. And one way is my major line of research is how do white masculinities operate in our society? 
like how does whiteness and masculinity, white men, um, but beyond white men, the structure, the deeper structures in society, um, how do they operate? And also how can we interrupt those operations? So, you know, one way they operate is what we saw January 6th, where those people, those Trump supporters stormed mm-hmm. the, the Capitol. Um, Capitol building. That is basically this very reactive form of white masculinity that's represented by Trump, but it's very deeper than that too, you know, alt-rightness, and that has a long tradition. But I'm also really interested in how people who hold those identities, so like us, white men, people who identify as white or male, masculine, and especially cis men, um, how do we shift those dynamics and how do we learn to change that? And and what do we actually do? What are the things that, because we don't want to do the things that we've always done and take, take leadership and, you know, talk for other people, but actually like contribute that pushes against those things. So like actually doing care work or behind the scenes work, um, or work on other white men. So those are like the real, like interests of mine in my research. Mm -hmm. And then my classes are all connected to liberation psychology and from different angles. Like I teach psych of gender. So psych of gender from a liberation perspective, community psych, um, peace psychology. And even when I teach um, psych one intro to psych, I try to weave all those perspectives together from a social justice perspective. And actually the history of social psychology or at least the theories help to support social justice and then the rest of psychology, there's some good things to take, but you have to critique psychology's role in oppression as well, which is interesting and challenging to do from a psych one perspective, but I try to do it. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It might be useful a little bit to define what you mean by liberation psychology. I'm, yeah. I think you alluded to Frary a little bit there, but, um, and he may, I don't know, maybe it, it stems from that, but I would like to hear it from your, your words, if you wouldn't it really mind. Does. Um, liberation psychology has a lot of different sources or roots and Frary is definitely one of them. Um, it is basically how do oppressed groups use psychology to break oppression, break the chains of oppression? Um, and how can psychology be in aid of that? So like understanding dominant narratives or understanding internalized forms of oppression or, or understanding how groups can come together to form social movements and to um, contribute towards freedom and social justice. And liberation is both a political and social process, but it's also has spiritual dimensions as well. So there's other, there's like a form of psychology called critical psychology, which has a lot of that, but liberation does root itself in people like um, Freire, who was a Marxist Christian, um, Ignacio Martin Barro, who was a Jesuit, um, Gloria Anzaldúa, who roots herself in combination, like uh, uh, earth-based, but also influenced by some roots in Catholicism um, or, or bell hooks, the way the bell hooks talks about her black feminism as being rooted in a spiritual tradition. So liberation psychology also has that flowing within it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you and I are both familiar with, um, 
Well, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I, I don't want to go down that path too much more, but yeah, thank you for that. And I feel like it definitely shows the work that you're doing and, you know, the, I guess the curriculum that you're building, right. As a general, um, maybe a pedagogy would be a better word for that. Um, because it seems like you're bringing it across all the stuff that you're teaching. And I guess from there, I'm a little bit curious to, and that's kind of what you studied, right? So that is like the basis of what you studied, but I'm curious too, to hear like how that went into your dissertation. Like what, what happened from there into your dissertation? Yeah, that was like the basis and the groundings for my dissertation and like what I pay attention to and what I think I should research from my perspective, from where I am positioned in the world. So like our identities, our social identities influence the way we see the world. So, um, my, as I mentioned, my, my whiteness and my masculinities influence that, but also my class background, um, growing up middle-class, my education background and, um, also all those things were privileged and have been privileged for me. In my research, a root of developing critical consciousness or this, this liberation perspective that I'm talking about is so often rooted, at least partially in this concept called radical marginality. And I love, it's a big word or two big words, but they, they're so, I love those words together. And the marginality part of it is that you are in society or in places in society in which you are marginalized, in which you are pushed out of the in-group or pushed to the sides, um, or made to feel other. Um, Mm -hmm. and the radical part of it is radical based in roots. It's Latin tradition. Um, the, the roots of developing the roots of anything. And in this case, it's the roots of society that taking a rooted perspective, looking at deep transformations of society and the way that systems are working together. And then wanting to change those systems, not just changing the symptoms of those systems. And so developing or having some form of radical marginality when I'm thinking about my own identities, I really strongly see that in two things. One, growing up with our dad having Parkinson's disease and that, so that's a, a disability and having a disability perspective on the world, I think was really important for me. Um, and our parents helping us develop what I'm starting to call, um, a wuss masculinity. I think it's time that we reclaim the word wuss, you know, other words that are like reclaimed. Well, I think, um, there's this type of gentle masculinity that gets called wussiness and like even in boys, right. Um, or especially in boys and then boys learn to not do that or hate that part of themselves or keep it and get bullied. And in my research, I saw that a lot. That was one artery of radical marginality. Um, Hmm. and so, yeah, um, that was definitely a part of my masculinity 
ever since I can remember and still is. And it's good to reclaim that aspect of my masculinity. That's an element of my masculinity that I'm most rooted in or I feel most comfortable in. And it's like, oh yeah, that's where I was bullied for that that type of boyness. It was like a, a boy masculinity at the time. Um, so anyways, that is my research in my dissertation. What, how did other white men who are, um, vetted by feminists and radical activists of color, they were nominated, um, by those folks in my network or in groups that I was in network with like organizations. Um, and so I got to interview 16 of them and talk about these questions. Like my research questions were like, what was your life story leading to where you are today in terms of an, of an activist? And then my second question was, what do you do in your life? So how do you live this? How do you, what's your praxis of anti-racist feminism? And yeah, so those were different chapters of my dissertation. And there's a lot to say there. And radical marginality is a big piece of how did they get to, um, where they were in, in their life. But I should also say, because I'm on the topic already, that the other key piece was mentorship, that the, the activists in my study, almost everyone, I think all, maybe all 16, talked about a, a key mentor in their life. And the mentor helped them make sense of these complications, like they're being bullied and like marginalized, but also how they have privilege in society and how they should think about using their privilege to be allies or accomplices or in solidarity with, um, you know, feminist movements or anti-racist movements. And so, yeah, that mentorship part is so key and it can come in the form of like older mentors or it can come in the form of like their partners or their comrades in struggle. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll stop there and see if you have any follow-ups before going on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a few things that are popping up, but it will lead us down a different path. One question I had are mostly around mentorship, but were the mentors in general, were they other white men? No, they were like very diverse in their race and gender backgrounds. So it's like basically everything. Like there were white male mentors who, who mentored those younger white men towards feminism and towards anti-racism. So these, these were not just general mentors, you know, but, but mentors towards these radical movements. Um, and yeah, some were white men, but all, some were like, uh, women, white women, women of color. Um, so it was, it was everything, which is cool and interesting to see, you know, like that mentorship can come from any social identity background, which is hopeful. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I'm also curious, did you, in your dissertation, did you reflect on your own, like, uh, background and your own narrative? Is, is that what you're calling them? Narratives? Yeah. Like my own, yeah, basically my own life narrative and yep. my own past. Yeah. Because I share in research terms, um, I fit the inclusion criteria of my own study and, right. um, yeah. It, oh yeah. The dissertation still makes me think about my own path. And I, I talked about that, you know, in like the methodology part of my dissertation, but all the results are basically like my, um, participants. Right. It's interesting too. And this is a little off topic, but I'm, 
I like how when we do this work, like this topic came from you doing a lot of work through grad school and then doing the dissertation probably had an effect on you in a lot of different ways where you're, um, you're like following the research and like the research is like pushing you in a direction too. And I feel like that's also like a really cool thing that can happen with projects like this. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate that observation because that's what liberation psychology should do. The research should contribute to like the development of critical consciousness or, and, or should all the research itself should push, should transform the world. Um, and so it definitely like my research transformed me it seemed to also transform my participants from what they said in positive ways. Um, and then hopefully like this can be useful as well in a broader way to transforming society. Um, because, you know, so many of the issues of our society are rooted in whiteness and masculinity, deeply rooted in those social structures, not only how they show up in white men. I mean, definitely there, definitely amongst white men, but also how whiteness and masculinity show up elsewhere and with other people in society. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, this gets us totally in a different path, but, um, part of my research interest and what I've been developing actually over the last 10 years is research into like the public violence of white men in particular public shootings, which, you know, affected us pretty closely in the sense of the shooting in Boulder. Um, but of course it's been plaguing, U.S. society for decades now. Um, that's a definitely rich and different topic, but just know that that's a part of my research because it has to be, it, you know, it's like a research. So like, I can't not do something about that. Right. Um, if I'm studying white masculinities. Mm, right. So I'm curious too a little bit about what your findings were. Is that the end of your dissertation? I'm assuming. Yeah, that, um, the, like the major findings in each chapter, I sort of already gave you the findings of um, that first chapter. Like, how do they become anti-racist and feminist? And there's like, there's nuances amongst those two big topics of radical marginality and mentorship. There's like some interesting things within those. But those are like the major overarching themes of how they become that. Then the next chapter is like the findings on how do they live their activism? And that is through, they, I found that they did work um, on themselves. Like there's internal work that they have to do on themselves. Like the, the continuing work of unlearning like whiteness and masculinities and, and learning and keeping oneself accountable to like staying on point and, and keeping on doing the work and not, and also fucking up, like messing up and then repairing after they've messed up. Um, the, the, like the, they need to do work in the ways that they show up in the world as well. So a major result is like white men need to do these two major things. They need to both step up and or one way to say it is step up and step back. I think a better way to say it is moving up towards taking action and moving up towards like listening and not taking space. So white men need to be very conscious of space and the way we take up space in society. And even though we don't think we necessarily, we may not see how much space we're taking. It's really 
important for us to be like checking in and helping having like ways to see the, the amount of ways, the amount and the ways we're taking up space in society. Because I see this in my classes, like white men have great things to say, um, but they, they jump in first and they like um, other people, you know, who are not white men, they're, you know, because of oppression and the ways like that affects confidence and power in society, they don't jump in as much. So I have to like, like, like basically divert white men or like tell them like, um, I'm not going to call on them, but not in a way to piss them off, nor in a way to shut them down because I want to be hearing from them. And if I shut down anyone, even another white man, it, it does tend to like shut down everything in a class. So it's complicated. So we need to like understand space and the way we take space, but we also need to take space often. And this is like, you know, the ideas of bystander, like when other white people or men are doing oppressive things, we need to step up and do something like it's, it's not acceptable to stay on the sidelines. Um, and too often women and people of color are the ones who step in. Lastly, we need to be doing things in a macro way. And that means we need to be teaching. We need to be um, working with other white men. And we also be needing to work in coalitions. Um, so we need to be working with uh, people of color and women um, and trans people. But we need to like implement, not in the, the old ways that we've been doing it, in ways that like is promoting um, empowerment, basically, of, of everyone in society. So yeah, that's the, the second chapter. The last chapter is another like complicated chapter, but I'll just stop there because I said a lot. Oh, yeah. I just love it. I just love where I guess the step up and step back. And that is interesting because it's definitely a lesson that you've taught me over the years. Um, that idea of what space we occupy. And I feel like you've told a few stories on this podcast, especially recently, how like maybe that was in our last season where we were talking about um, confrontation and avoidance and how like a conversation you had with a student about just like how stepping, how the space we occupy is an important thing to be mindful of. And those are hard conversations to have, but I know that like it can be transformative to have those conversations. So, and to, you know, we might not even be aware of it, you know, because so often like we are told that if we're doing well in school, it means to be like participating and have our hand in the air and to be like saying our opinions. And that gets a lot of credit in elementary, middle and high school, you know, being an active participant is really what a lot of teachers are looking for. So it's interesting to have that moment to step to of mentorship with you to be like, Oh, maybe this is like, a moment where I'm like being critical of like who I am in the classroom and that space, because that is not a lesson that I can imagine receiving in any high school class. You know, I mean, yes, we're told to shut up, but not if like, you know, kids are told to not talk or like to be on task or to be on topic, you know, but if you are that, that doesn't necessarily mean that like, yeah, it's just a good, it's a, Good reminder. And it's a lesson that I've brought with me. I don't know if you know this even over the last, you know, six years with, um, you know, elementary education is so often filled 
very filled with women, you know, and it's you, but very often that being said too, there is typically men in administration, you know, and I feel like that dynamic is an interesting dynamic with like, I think we can all imagine the male principal and the, the female teachers, you know, and that it feels like an archaic model. And I'm not saying that that's what every school is shooting for or does or yada, yada, yada. But I do feel like it's important as a male to have a mentality of like, where, where's my voice helping and where's my voice silencing. So. Yeah. That's a great way to like, that's the exact question. I like the way you frame that question a lot. And uh, like, so that we need to always be asking ourselves that in any social space we're in. And then because of the way that privilege works, like what we see is only partial. Like we can see, we can like determine some places where like, it seems like very likely that I'm helping here and very likely that I'm um, like maybe not helping or harming in this other place. But then we also need structures of accountability where we can get feedback um, from people in social spaces. Like um, there's this idea of having critical friends where we have we develop friendships in a ways that we're willing to give each other critical feedback or feedback that could be like hard, but it's like important to hear. Um, because like feedback of like when we're fucking up basically or messing up. Um, and, but it's for the greater good of liberation. And so also like giving that feedback should be done with thoughtfulness and carefulness and then like receiving it should be done with like gratefulness and grace. That's like what we're striving for. Um, so yeah, that's like so much, so many like things can sprout off these conversations. And one thing that I'm thinking about is like, I teach so much because I'm a lecturer that I can't publish. And I get like a lot of like, there's a lot of people interested in like, what to do about white men? Like, what can we do? Like the question, what can we do about white men? Um, which is a very reasonable question. And like, I have research on it, but I can't publish it because I'm too busy teaching because I'm so exploited as a lecture lecturer. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm letting my participants down and I'm letting like the people who vouched for me to get into grad school and to work in grad school who mentored me down. So I'm not saying that as a guilt thing. I'm saying that as like a, a structural thing. The system has exploited me as a lecturer so much that I can't publish this research. Um, just like, I just don't have any time to actually work on that, but I do say like, that's enough. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that I just can't do that anymore. And I'm going to, I can't live with that anymore. I'm going to publish this summer. I'm going to like sit down and write. Are you? Yeah. Yep. That's a, always a goal, but then like something always seems to happen. Like last year, the pandemic happened and the year before something else happened. I can't remember, but I'm just going to no more, no more, no more excuses, you know? Yeah, Bob, that's cool. Well, I'm sure that that work would be appreciated, you know, and I'm sure that, um, you know, we can link it, link to it in the show notes someday. <laughs> yeah. I just link a hyperlink to my dissertation for now. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Are there any final things that you want to share with us or do you feel like we left 
people with unanswered questions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like everyone reacts to it in different ways. Like it's it's interesting to people in different ways. So like I, I loved hearing how you've used it. You've you've integrated it into your work life, your praxis. And I would be curious. Yeah, if you if you had any other ways of thinking about like in your positionality, what do you do as a white man or what could you learn from what I just said to do? Gosh, I like, I guess one of the things that I was thinking a lot about on this podcast was this, I, the tool of reflection, you were talking about how your participants were like grateful for the, cause I know that a lot of the interviews were emotional, right? They were like a couple, couple few hours. Yeah. Two to four hours. You didn't know many of the people ahead of time. Yeah, I knew like um, maybe one quarter of the participants. So yeah, it was actually just a little bit on that. It was really interesting to interview those that I knew. Mm -hmm. And it was also super interesting to interview those that I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like one of the things that I was thinking about is how important reflection is to our learning and especially self-reflection. I mean, it's important to reflect on things like whatever, like the Pythagorean theorem and like how we can use that to like solve algebra. But really what I'm thinking about is like the idea of reflection and that is learning. That is like in its essence, like how we learn. Right. Like, and I don't, I don't want to speak for the animal kingdom and like, you know, plants and animals and how they actually learn and what they, what they're doing. But I feel like humans have this way of reflection being a, like a very key tool in how we operate in the world and to, I don't know, some people either they are afraid of it or they don't want to confront that reflection or it's just like not easy to do. I mean, no, we all, you can't avoid it reflecting on your day and that and what have you. I think you're onto something pretty deep in the sense of actually people do avoid it and there's a lot of ways to avoid it especially now with so much technology. Um, and what you're saying is something very Frarian. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. He, he says that like to be human is to critically self-reflect. That's what human humanness means to Frary. So mm-hmm. yeah, you've just, you've just articulated pedagogy of the oppressed chapter one. So uh, you're welcome. And we'll link that one in the show notes too. Yeah, no, Bob, thank you. I appreciated um, having this conversation again. I know we've had it at times in the past, but it's easy to forget. And it's good to bring it up again because it's like, like anything, it's a learning piece. And, you know, I have not read your dissertation, um, but someday. Yeah, if you have, because it's inaccessible as a dissertation. Yeah, exactly. No, I, yeah, I appreciate it being able to like say all this. It's always so live for me. So thank you, Dave, for bringing it out of me, unpacking it. Yeah. Well, I think it all came from a conversation maybe while we were watching a basketball game together, right? Somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or fantasy baseball draft somewhere. <laughs> well, I think that brings us to everyone's favorite, favorite segment. Gut check. Gut check. Gut check. Gut check. Uh, so I think I'm up. Yeah, and I do. I do think this is a very popular se- section to end the show. <laughs> That's great. 
Yeah. Well, we're going to keep it in the critical. And it looks like right now we're on, I think we're on like day four, day five. It must be day four, Thursday. We're recording of the George Floyd trial. And yeah, I have not really been following it because it's been an up and down week for me, like uh, with work. But I guess I'm going to just put a prediction out there and say that I think, um, how do you say his name? Ch- Chovarin? Um, Chov- is Chov- it Chevarin? Chevarin? Uh, or Chauvin? Chov- yeah. And we should say, you know, I should, I should jump in here and say, um, we should properly call it the Derek Chauvin trial because yeah. George Floyd is not on trial. Right. <laughs> the Derek Chauvin trial. Right. Um, my fault, but it is, um, you know, of course we're all more familiar with the name George Floyd. So, but I'm going to say that he is gonna, he's going to be put behind bars, Bob. And I'm going to say my gut is saying over 10 years. Yeah. This is like, we wanted to, we had our show planned and, um, but still wanted to like, note this like historic. And so we wanted to try to bring the Chauvin trial in and any way we could. And so, yeah, the gut check is, uh, I mean like, yeah, I love this section of the show and it's like, yeah, like for real, like, what do we think? Where are we in U S society? Because like everything up to this point in U S society will say, Oh no, like his whiteness and his like being a police officer will get him immunity. Mm -hmm. Um, and time and time again, right? Uh, to Mike Brown, the guy who killed Mike Brown and um, Eric Gardner and just, you know, everyone, every black person, brown person, et cetera. Um, so, but. Even Breonna Taylor, you know, even up until like. Definitely. Yes. Sure. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We're totally within the Breonna Taylor situation and those three cops getting off and not getting any. There's no accountability there. Yep. Yep. Um, but we have with like Chauvin's killing of George Floyd. I mean, like uh, that just erupted. That was the spark last year um, for the biggest public demonstrations ever in U.S. society. Um, So is that enough? Maybe that could be enough. And like the witnesses are just saying how fucked up it was and how callous Chauvin was. Um, So maybe there's enough to believe that what you're saying, Dave is possible, like guilty and getting the, I think he's up for like, I think it's like manslaughter. I think it's like not second degree murder. I I could be wrong about that. I haven't followed the actual charges. Um, so I'll look that up, but yeah, I don't know, Dave. It's like, uh, I so want to believe there will be, and, and it's not even a form of justice. It's like the system's justice, but it's still important in a certain way. I'll give it like, I still think it's like, four towards like not yeah. likely. Um, not likely. I lean towards yeah. it not happening, but it's more than it was, you know, because of all the things that I mentioned. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I guess that's probably where I'm at too. Maybe even just a three, mm-hmm. um, but I like your analysis and yeah, I feel like it's at least worth putting out there and seeing. Yeah. And like where we're at with this as we're following it. 
Yeah, and to be fair, I am not following it very well because, yeah, as as life tends to happen, we get caught up behind other things, you know. But yeah, no, I know you're super busy with teaching. Absolutely. Yeah, we do all have. I know it's coming up. Even I do like that. It's important that this trial is at least getting publicized so much, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that's more steps at least. Well, Babo, you want to give us our, you want to give us our coordinates? Yeah, you can email us at davepeachtree at gmail dot com, Instagram thriving underscore in underscore dystopia, Twitter at bmaze nineteen, the website thrivingindystopia.com, and Dave on love still love it. I still love Dave on TikTok, Dave Peachtree at Dave Peachtree, all one word. And yeah, Dave, I, I'm excited to see where the season goes and hope you get out there and enjoy some seeds coming up here. Oh, yeah. Well, happy Easter, Bob. Love you. Bye. I don't What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. And finally, our new outro song is Stay by Valerie June. See you next week. I can't put thought I lost it. Having you in my life was a show.